0: Welcome to the Circle Stories Podcast, where we aim to explore the stories within, between, and around the various circles we inhabit in our lives. Well, good morning to you. Thanks for joining me. I'm talking today with Kenza Hested. Thanks again for, for agreeing to talk to me. And I talked to Mayhan a couple of days ago and uh, we had a good conversation. Good. And I think I'd like to start the same way I started with him. I was wondering if we could just do a brief check-in. Mm. Um, I'm wondering um, what's been, what's been giving you joy and, and what's been lifting you up in, in these days?
1: Um. um. Well, I've actually probably done more writing in recent weeks than I have before. Writing is never easy work, but since I've had it, in effect more time on my hands, I've given myself over to doing that. I always enjoy it a lot when I finish. Right, <laughs> um, It's the finishing part that takes, you know, we decided early on for the first couple of weeks of the shutdown, Nancy and I just waved at our kids and grandkids from a distance. Um, mm-hmm. and then we decided, um, we're all being quite careful. Um, and as a compromise for mental health, we decided to, we don't do the hugging and kissing we used to do, but we actually eat together a couple of times a week. Now it used to be one on average once a week. Um, uh, now we do it more often than that. And, um, uh, one of the things that Nancy did just the Saturday before Easter, she got a puppy. Um, oh, right. We've been several years without a dog. Um, and so um, the dog fortunately has two homes now. She often spends the afternoon up the street with our kids and grandkids. Um, so she's getting lots of loving. Oh, that's been one of the joyful things. Well, that's good. And you can see the joy in the in your grandkids'
0: face when uh oh, yeah. when the dog comes and yeah. Again yeah. in Nancy's face when it comes home
1: at night, huh? That's right. It's <laughs> true. And we've done um you know, they're at an age where um they're they're far enough apart in years that um the older one um gets tired of the younger one. Uh, so we've done some social distancing for our grandkids. Nice. <laughs> ah, so several times Sydney's come over and spend the night with us on oh, her own. That's uh, nice. So she can get away from her uh, frustrating younger brother. Sure. Must be just a
0: different time for them as well and and how they're perceiving everything and
1: I think uh, I think one of the f- fabulous things about um, my daughter and son-in-law they're really good parents. Um and they have worked hard um, to alleviate the natural anxiety uh, and, in times, the sheer boredom um, of young ones. And they've found ways to creatively deal with that. Uh, Nancy has also done a lot. She took the grandkids to do uh, um, spend a couple of hours cleaning up Hominy Creek, which is over here close to us. One of their neighbors works for um, uh, what is it? Green Opportunities, and had those uh, orange trash bags. So they got their grabbers, went over there, and cleaned up the creek. You know, thinking of things like that. Right. Fresh yeah. air, exercise, yeah. and yeah, exactly.
0: Quality time with grandma and yeah, cool. good. Well, there is of course the flip side to that question, and what's what's been.
1: What's been less uh, joyful? What's been getting you down lately? Um, I really miss not seeing Circle of Mercy folk up close and personal. You know, doing it online—that's um, pretty important part of my week, and it's felt very strange not to not to leave the house Sunday afternoon and go spend an hour or so with uh, some of my favorite people. Um, on a much larger scale. Um, seeing the country continue to devolve, the, uh, we already had a threadbare social fabric, and even that's been ripped further and further. The sheer negligence, narcissism, self-serving actions and policies by our federal leadership has just been heartbreaking. So seeing what's going on uh, in our nation, it's always a burden to bear because part of my work involves doing a lot of reading. I pay attention to a lot of news, locally, nationally, internationally. So I've had to uh, put myself a little bit more on a diet than I have in the past. Um, There's only so much tragedy tragedy that you can take in and stay healthy mentally. but, yeah, just seeing the, um, um, the increasing level of vengeful behavior, uh, the sheer stupidity, um, you wonder what kind of judgment this represents. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like we're getting, we're reaping what we have sown. And this history is not just recent, it goes back a ways. And it's not just the president in the, in the Oval office uh, i 'm relatively confident that we'll get rid of uh, that we'll um, um, uh, give Trump his termination notice in the fall mm-hmm. uh, but trumpism i don 't think will go away that easily, so i'm worried about how are we going uh, to handle it's still a minority in the country but it 's a but it's a vigilant and loud minority. The one thing that we like more than anything else is a a careful um, tracing or mapping of the DNA of Trumpism. There's part of that constituency that we will never have conversation, fruitful conversation with, but I think there are parts of it that we could have fruitful conversation and how to sort that out, what are the venues, to have open dialogue uh, with our political opponents that take their fears seriously. You know, anger is usually a disguise of fearfulness. So for part of that constituency, how do we listen to that fearfulness and take it seriously? What is it they feel like they're losing? So? Right.
0: Well, my, this goes to my original uh, vision for the podcast, which was, to um, explore the the five three one model of telling stories, uh-huh. and um, as a, as a way of of maybe possibly bridging that gap between, I don't I don't like to use us and them, but mm-hmm. um, those that that we aren't talking to right now, we aren't communicating effectively yep. with the twenty three to thirty three percent of the. We'll call them the Trumpers, the Trumpism, the the Trump faction. I guess one of the things I'd like to explore, even in the COVID time, is, you know, if we can tell stories, if we can find some common ground, if, if my experience at 531, and I know you've you've been there and you've told stories as well, I've explained this in other podcasts. I'd better explain it now. But um, so this is a thing that Gareth and Brian, our friends from Circle of Mercy, put together, five stories, three songs, one action. It met once a month uh, pre-COVID, and we told stories, and we shared a common experience in that room. And I think what I got out of that was that each person in that room could take something from the story that was being told. And if we can try and use that model, if I find the same thing compelling that that maybe someone else feels that we can share that. Yep. And I don't know how to do that on a broad scale. I don't know if it's possible on a community wide scale or even larger than that. It might have to happen on the one-on-one scale. Mm-hmm. And what I'm finding is I don't talk to, uh, I'm going to use the wrong words again, but I don't talk to those mm-hmm. people. You know, I don't, yep. I, I've carefully curated my, Facebook feed I don't you know I don't have a lot of interaction with Mm -hmm. because it it tends to draw me down and draw me into places that I don't I'm not I don't feel very healthy um, when I do that and And that's uh,
1: not a particularly good form anyway
0: right right and you I'm just I'm just gonna say you've been around the block a few times and I'm wondering if if you see any similarities between this time and other this has been called a generation defining event Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, your parents went through the Depression. Um, You went through the Civil Rights Movement. These are other generation-defining events. These are seminal moments in our history that fomented positive change. And I'm wondering if if you could see that possibility
1: here at work. Well, I definitely think it's not only possible, but um, highly advisable. The question is, just as you've raised, how do we do that? And I don't feel like I have any more wisdom than you do. And thinking back in my career, what gave me the most opportunities, um, uh, you know, I began my professional career working with a, a magazine, an educational ministry on world hunger issues and focused specifically on churches and very specifically even more on Southern Baptist churches. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, getting out into those highways and byways gave me a chance up front and personal um to to say what my concerns were and then to have conversation in smaller people who i had the chance to to hear in relatively safe environments uh, uh, because it was usually in the context of these individuals on home church so they, you know, I wasn't outgunning gunning them. Uh, I was, the, in a sense, the loner in the room. Um, mm-hmm. And then oddly enough, um, my work, several years working as a stonemason people, it's the first time in my life that most of my day, work day, was spent around people of a, of a different, um, at least economic class, but probably a social class, an educational class, et cetera, et cetera. I found that um, humbling. Um, uh, uh, and it gave me the chance or it prompted me to more often <clears throat> do self interrogation. Mm. Uh, what assumptions was I bringing? It, it helped me point out my own blind spots. Uh, and Lord knows we all have them. Yeah. Um, and the interaction with the other, so to speak, whatever uh, label or terminology you want to use, uh, is crucial not only for flourishing. I'm reading a wonderful book right now that uses the word flourishing as the uh, his most important theological framework, hmm. that creation's flourishing is the purpose of God. And I like that that use of that word. What's the book and who's the author? The title is uh, For the Life of the World. Uh, it's by uh, Miroslav Wolf, V-O-L-F, and Matthew Crossman, I don't know Crossman, but I have read Wolf's work before. Uh, I think he's a spectacular theologian. He's also a. Um, uh, I was trying to think how to describe him to someone I was telling about recently. He is the Cirque du Soleil of uh, the intellectual world. Wow, okay. he's not always easy to follow mm-hmm. because his mind is is expansive. I always find it worth the work, though. Sometimes, even though we're, I'm not following him in certain places, I know if I just keep trudging on, I'll get back on track. Okay. Uh, so it's not something that I recommend um, broadly, um, because he is his mind is so powerful. Uh, it, it, I know it will be hard. Sure. So he's not for everyone, but I. I like especially, uh, and Brueggemann, uh, Walter Rueggemann also uses the language of flourishing. Both of them do that in particular to try to overcome the bias that humans have for human redemption and put it in a context of creation's redemption. It's not, you know, we've engaged in a lot of anthropological um, uh, arrogance uh, just talking about human redemption. We need to talk about the judgment at creation that the world is good has never been revoked. Clearly, the world has been asundered mm. in so many different ways. But our end game is that there will be a new world, a new heaven, a new earth. Um, right. And so that kind of uh, the broadening of of understanding of God's work in the world to include all creative things and not just humans okay. so that's been um, part of my intellectual work recently um, I go back and forth from um, deeply devotional work to uh, philosophical and theological work to social analysis and political analysis and um, sometimes I consciously do that most of the time just unconsciously I know all those three things have to be included uh, to create or to generate the insight that we need and how we're how we're to live.
0: Are you uh, are you sprinkling anything in there
1: that's a little lighter, or is it? Uh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> is it all... <laughs> I'm also a fan of John Grisham's mystery novels. <laughs> oh okay,
0: okay. Uh, so me
1: too. I, I... If you like a good murder mystery novel. Um, Gershom is my recommendation. No, no, I, uh, I keep up with him as well. So Oh, do you? Good. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. My favorite he, used to be um, uh, Tony. I'm blocking his last name. Um, all of his stories are written from the Four Corners uh, area of the Southwest. Oh, yeah. Um, and the main characters are Navajos. Sure, a, okay. a sheriff and a deputy sheriff uh, are the key characters that run throughout his series of novels, and he's got oh fifteen or twenty of them. Mm-hmm. I first discovered those way back in early nineties. We were preparing to mark the uh, quincentenary, nineteen ninety-two, five mm-hmm. hundredth anniversary of Columbus getting lost and landing in the Caribbean and calling it India. Right. Uh, and someone told me, well, you'll learn a lot about indigenous spirituality if you read these Tony Hillerman. Hillerman, this is his right. last Yeah,
0: I think um, I've read a
1: few of those, yeah. Uh, and he does. He, he has, you know, received many awards from from indigenous peoples for his accurate portrayal of indigenous spirituality, particularly among the Navajo. And I, I tend to keep uh, two or three books going at the same time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm more in a mood to read this kind of literature or that kind of literature. So I just kind of let my intuitive uh, impulses guide how much time I spend with each. Sure. And then just, you know, with the news, I spend a two or more hours every day just reading news, newspapers, mm-hmm. news services, trying to keep. My goal has always been, uh, I, I I picture working pastors in my mind while I'm working pastors who have a thousand and one different things they have to think about all the time and have relatively little time to keep up with details news and so how can I do that and synthesize lift up significant moments events occurrences uh, uh, to give them a, a leg up on keeping uh, aware of what's happening in the world and, and connecting the dots, showing the connection between multiple different events, how they have you know a common, common background that needs to be understood in order to interpret them properly. So right. that's been my vision for prayer and politics uh, since the beginning yeah. was to, was to um, be a, um, a clipping service, in fact, for working pastors.
0: And that's what I appreciate about prayer and politics is the, is the timeliness you're yeah. taking an issue from yesterday's news or 2 days ago or you know within the week for sure and you're giving you know a perspective of yeah. of it right in real time yeah. i think that's that's invaluable let's take a break
2: Got a meeting at 6:30, so he won't have time to stay for dinner with his darling and his daughter on the way. He's fighting down the freeway, sewing up that dotted line. There's no time like a the present. There's no present like time. Oh, the little one gets presents for a little consolation. Gave her her own telephone, but not much conversation. Ask them for a moment, like a beggar for a dime There's no time like the present There's no present like time Model student in high school Does her homework every night Sends her mortarboard flight New future looking great Hangs a tassel from the mirror Of the present parked outside There's no time like the present There's no present like A husband and a daughter And a lot of bills to pay Everyone needs something from her They all need it today But she can't be omnipresent She's working overtime There's no time like the present There's no present like time Then the phone is late at the office It's coming in on the it's her husband, it's her father Seems he finally made his deadline Deadline Now she's curiously packing for a little time away She's got a week's vacation, she's gonna make it her husband's turning bitter. Her daughter just turned nine. There's no time like present. no present like time. No present like time. No. No present like time. No present like time. No time. No. 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 no.
0: What, um, you know, current science tells us that our, our brains aren't fully developed until we're 25 years old.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: What would the uh, 25-year-old Ken uh, think of, of these times right
1: now? Mm. I begin, uh, you know, my uh, b- a brief summary of my personal histories is, is uh, useful at this point. I was a traveling teenage youth evangelist. Okay. I was more religious than my parents. In fact, one counselor once told me that may have been your rebellion, that you actually became more pious than your parents, who were pretty pious. Interesting. Um, but it was based out of uh, when I was at age 14. I didn't, didn't put this together until at least a decade later. I had a truly uh, a, a, a profoundly mystical experience. Um later I was able to describe all the major categories that describe historically from the mystics what it's like, what that experience is like. Well, I had that. But in Snyder, Texas, um my pastor, the only he had no language to help me with that. So he just said, Well, you've been called to preach. Mm. So I said, Okay, that's what I'll be. So I preached my first sermon when I was 14. I made an outline based on three different sermons from Billy Graham and worked through my outline in seven minutes. And so then just had to parrot a bunch of religious phrases to get through it. Um, And I decided that, um, you know, well, if I'm going to be a preacher, the most exciting preachers I knew were traveling evangelists. You know, they got to be rambunctious. Uh, They got to wear flashy clothes you know, they were kind of sex sex symbols in a way. So that's what I decided I was going to be. And there were three of us in high school who traveled all over. I was living in Louisiana at this time, all over Louisiana, parts of Texas, parts of Mississippi. Um, but I, in the midst of that, I had this another, I think, mystical uh, experience that was profoundly uncomfortable. I began sensing that uh the kind of manipulation that i was being involved in that i was perpetrating uh, particularly on other young people and began having profound questions which i couldn't talk about of what we were doing i just felt like there's something rotten in this that i couldn't put my finger on so luckily when i went off to college that evangelistic team uh, broke up um and that's when I was um, became acquainted with the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. by working in a Christian coffee house in Waco, Texas. And um, the call to commitment, uh, um, what's her name's, I'm blocking her name right now. That's when my theological dam began to break. Cracks, leaks. Um, long story short, I transferred to New York University for my junior year, and that's when I was in full crumbling uh, place of my life. Um, So everything was coming undone. Slowly but surely, thankfully, I had a really good professor at NYU, a religion professor who cast me several lifelines to not drown a, a flood that was happening. And then the transition to Union Seminary, when I first entered, I had no desire to work in the church, but the God question was still a lively one. So Union was good because it helped me. It was a place that not only allowed, but even encouraged theological kicking and screaming. So I I was in full retreat uh, from my inherited faith. But slowly but surely began building, laying the foundation, pouring the foundation for a new uh, architecture of my faith, um, got out of seminary, um, influenced particularly by liberationists uh, at Union, and the rediscover of my own 18th and 19th century evangelical quote-unquote history, and my Anabaptist, the Anabaptist side of my history. Mm-hmm. That's when I fully began exploring re- reading uh, in Anabaptist life, and that's where I still consider uh, I, I tell people my ship has many sails, um, but probably the main sail is that widespread, very diverse uh, tradition that we use the word Anabaptist to talk about. Uh, hmm. Some of the Anabaptists were just screw-ups hmm. <laughs> and highly violent people. Um, yeah. But the, the the heart of that tradition, that's when I began um, you know, working on world hunger issues I began to sense and read the Bible in a very materialistic way that um, the first truly original thought that I had was this, uh, God is more taken with the agony of the earth than with the ecstasy of heaven. And that was a profound theological, philosophical life orientation shift, um, that spirituality and material materiality are not separate things uh, spiritual life is material life lived rightly righteously faithfully justly and of course you know the Bible says more about justice than about any other topic right <laughs> and so working on the world hunger issues gave me the chance um, because the poor um, and other descriptive terms are everywhere in the Bible Begin sensing the um, how appropriate it was to speak about spirituality as the work toward the adequate food for all. And, you know, we were very, those of us who did seeds were, we didn't use the term intersectional, but we were fully aware of the intersectionality of about it as being the open door we wanted people to walk through and then see the connections between hunger and militarism hunger and ecological destruction, hunger and um, the repression of women. So, you know, we, we did themed issues that linked hunger with um, so many more. And one of the Im- most important insights I got from that uh, was by an author named Francis Moore LePay, uh, who wrote a, a, a groundbreaking book back in the 80s, whose name I'm not remembering right now, but it was the first really large systematic look at the, at world hunger and all the connecting tissues and in her introduction she describes an experience talking with a friend uh, her friend asked her how can you spend all day every day week after week year after year investigating such a horrible topic of malnutrition um, and lepay said well the more i study it the more Uh, transparent it becomes. I see cause and effect relationships, which means it gives me the sense that there is something that can be done. We're not fated to live this way. And so um, ironically enough, studying this terrible blight of world hunger actually was the basis for hope. We see what is causing these things we can do something about these things. And that's been a guiding force for my activist work uh, ever since. The more, if we can, if we can look behind the curtain, <laughs> pull the cr- Okay. You're back. I think. Okay. You were pulling back the curtain when I lost you. Like in the wizard of Oz, the climactic moment when they pull back the curtain and find that the person who has this loud, angry, demanding voice is really just a, scared and frightened man, you know, that, that, that pulling back the curtain, helping people, doing the pastoral work of guiding people in the direction where we can pull back that curtain. So, um, you know, I've had occasion, as you can imagine, particularly when I, when I work with the Baptist Peace Fellowship, of being tagged as a prophet. Uh, the truth is, 90% of my work uh, during those years, was pastoral work. Mm. Uh, the prophets were already out there, uh, but they were frequently isolated, alone, uh, um, having no sense of support. Sometimes feeling like illegitimate children, and so finding those people, encouraging them, linking them to other people and to other resources, uh, has been at the heart of my vocation. Not doing the prophetic work myself, but pastoring prophets who are scattered about the land. We have no conception usually of how many of us there are. Um, That was really the whole reason for founding the Baptist Peace Fellowship, was the sense that there's a lot more of us than anybody knows, but we have to go looking for them. We have to expend time and energy and money to, to find them, to resource them, to link them with others. So,
0: and to bring them into the, into the mainstream and yeah, to...
1: Well, to find a community. Yeah. So that they don't feel like illegitimate children. They, they have mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews and nieces, and more than they have any sense of realizing. And when you, when you give people that sense of connection, that's when power is generated. Absolutely. Or, that's why organizing generates new power. There's power that was not there before. Uh, and it has relatively little to do with money. Uh, when people sense that, that they have a community of conviction, which we all desperately need um, to keep going and to stay healthy, though. So my move from being an activist, quote unquote, to founding a congregation and being a pastor mm-hmm. on a much smaller... Uh, arena pastoring a local church than I did before.
0: Yeah. I don't think you should give up your
1: activist creds uh,
0: too quickly. Yeah.
1: I think, you- well, I, I did make the conscious decision not to be as involved as before in part because of this, um, this lingering, I, I am still awash in pursuing a mystical vision of vocation. And I, I made, um, as a, you know, uh, in my activist career, I rarely made time to write. Mm. And I always knew I needed to do more than I was doing. Organizing was easier work, (laughs) more immediate satisfaction. You organize an event, you pull it off. Um, At least some of the time it's successful. And you sort of, the, the connection between your labor and the product of your labor was more visible. That's one of the reasons I love um, uh, my work as a stock uh, rock mason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you put a rock wall in place, my God, it's going to be there for, for decades, if not centuries. Right. And you can, you know, stand back and look at it. Um, and at the end of every day, you can measure your progress. Whereas a writer, it's harder to do that. It's, it's a lonelier work. Um, uh, but it's it's a work I feel this season of my life that I'm more committed to. I'm not unengaged in the world, but I take I consciously take fewer um, invitations to work on some project or be a part of some group, and um, um, I apply my bottom to the seat of my chair more hours now than I ever had before, and I, I like this. It has not been hard to make that transition there. I miss a number of things from my previous work, particularly the international connections. Um, I maintain some of that network, but I know I'm not nearly as engaged as I used to be. Um, But I I consciously chose what I am doing, and I like it. I like it very much.
0: What I'm struck with is the idea that what worked in the past in terms of gathering these disparate voices together, these, these prophets together, and giving them a community might not work today. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that is due to the culture of the current lack of, uh, of media integrity, um, mm-hmm. that we're all in our own bubble. And so the prophets are going to gravitate to the bubble in which they're most received. And I'm wondering if, if that's gonna be something that, that we're gonna to need to address and tackle and figure out how to, how to breach that gap, is that?
1: Well, it's not a new problem. It's, right. It, it's accentuated with, with the pandemic, obviously. There is a function of preaching to the choir which will always be essential. Okay. Because the choir needs encouragement. The choir needs Um, insight. When we gather, once we get back to being able to gather week by week, uh, we all have need of a kind of nourishing that enables us to continue living in ways that are in conflict with the way things are. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I I don't mind preaching to the choir. Uh, Obviously, that the nurture and, and the, the missional aspect, uh, or both must be carried on. Um, it's been uh, from the beginning um, when the three of us were just daydreaming about this, I quite clearly said and have said several times since then, whether or not Circle of Mercy grows in measurable terms, money, people, is neither here nor there. Uh, that's not up to us, but whether or not we labor with every bit of our might and intelligence to communicate who we are in the world is up to us. Most quote-unquote progressive churches tend to gather and form groups that are kind of like family reunions, mm. and spend very little time articulating and bearing a word in the world that includes uh, uh, an invitation uh, to come and be a part and be shaped by a community like this, uh, which I think is is very much a part of our duty that we should articulate who we are and what we do, what we stand for that is inherently invitational. You want to see what following Jesus is like. Here's one way. Mm -hmm. Come be a part of this community. Uh, or another community, Uh, but be a part of a community. I think that's still uh, the core. Uh, It's that anti-communal spirit that has been in this country since the beginning. You know, individualism, you trace the intellectual history of individualism back to the Renaissance uh, and the Enlightenment, that we are self-made creatures is the biggest lie circulating in the world. Um, And so getting people to recognize that we will starve to death spiritually without our connections with Mm -hmm. each other Mm -hmm. and without connections with each, with at least some others who don't talk the way we do, (laughs) who don't express themselves the way we do, um, whose practice of piety may not be our practice of piety. so. You know, I'm sure you've studied some uh, group um, um, uh, strategy and analysis. Uh, uh, Every new person that joins an existing group will shift the shape, the whole shape of that group. Mm -hmm. That is, we will, the people who are already there will lose some control, which is, Risky, right? right. Uh, and if we're not doing that, then we really do become a very tightly wound bubble, and uh, we simply perpetuate the um, the self centeredness, which is so much a part of how we misbehave in the world. Right, and. I didn't mean to downplay
0: or disparage the the bubble community that that I'm in. I
1: mm-hmm. I totally I don't understand what you mean. Well, <laughs> like I would say echo chamber.
0: Sure, sure. Uh,
1: and, and
0: I've expressed many times that that the, the the circle of mercy community for me is is my is my tribe. These are my people, and um, I've only been a part of it for four years now. But um, it's what got me back into church, yeah. and uh, for that all forever be grateful and and the community that i have there is i can't imagine living without it now so Mm -hmm. so i'm not trying to downplay the the power of that but i also just i i tend to jump the gun and try and go for the the solution and and, uh, try and uh, pinpoint the problem and and Mm -hmm. go go from there but i i do that at the expense of appreciating what i have Mm -hmm. and and uh I need to work on that, so I completely appreciate
1: the the work well there there are two um not conflicting uh themes, but very different themes in scripture in the history of of faith. one is homecoming and one is exile. Mm. We all need some kind of home, but we also recognize in some profound ways we are not at home Uh, we are exiled people Uh, we got to get back to the garden Um, so balancing those two that's the right word uh, mixing those two both a sense of having a home and a sense of being in conflict with the world of of having no place uh, Mm -hmm. to, uh, to lay my hand but like you say your question I think is still very pertinent the mechanisms if if building these communities in these networks is crucial which i think is true we are always learning that what has worked in the past may not work now Um, and that's part of our discord you know when folks get up around my age um, we're a little suspicious of wanting to do things completely differently (laughs) because what has worked before has worked for us. And right. by God, we want, we want it to work for other people. Uh, and so there's an inherent tension, usually generational. Right. How do we sort out... Um, it's what, it was one of the reasons, there were multiple reasons, but one of the reasons I decided to relinquish my formal pastoral duties at Circle of Mercy is I knew we were starting the transition period. You know, mm-hmm. Nancy will probably... Relinquish her duties within a year or so, and that you know that it was proper uh, that we not only uh, um, endure that sense of loss, and there is a sense of loss, but that it is a opening. Mm -hmm. It is something to be celebrated, and something that we need to learn to trust, to allow others to shape the community in ways that we might think is very strange, very odd. Uh, but, to trust each other enough to allow other people to step out in leadership roles, yeah
0: and and going back to what you were talking about in in terms of as I grow older, I remember thinking that there was so much pushback from people older than me but th- the The antithesis to that is the young kids while the the um, elders in our in our lives don 't see the changes. That the younger kids want to make the younger kids sometimes tend to re- want to reinvent the wheel
1: every time, and so you know if we can well, find the wise, the, the wise one is uh, ones I think do think that.
0: Well, but there's I, I think there's room for some meeting in the middle of that. We don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel, but we don't need to do everything like we always have done. It. Exactly. And, and if we can find that sweet spot, boy,
1: that's yeah. that's where change happens. I think how do we sort out the wisdom from the tactics? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there are enduring bits of streams of wisdom that we need to maintain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that often means, you know, the flow of the river is going to change. There will be new strategies and tactics. And how do we negotiate that together and stay together? Mm-hmm. Right? So it's never easy. And I, I definitely see that happening at Circle. The, uh, mm-hmm. the
0: tension there is, is healthy. And that that feels very, very good to me
1: instead of of adversarial. I think think the biggest compliment Circle of Mercy has ever or will ever get is the fact that we have hung on to our teenagers. Mm. We grew youth groups twice before this current season. And about mid-high school, they would start drifting away. Mm. Uh, And it was always a source of you know, you you can't make them come. That won't, won't do what's needed. But the fact that we couldn't keep them was a judgment. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that we are, at least for the time being, keeping more than a few is the nicest thing anybody could say to us. And then second after that is the young adults. Mm -hmm. We have had young adult constituencies, you know, six, eight, 10 in the past, Um, usually uh, would lose those, often more for career reasons, people following their career. Um, But that we have now a new younger adult group is, wow. Um, That's that's just phenomenal. If we are creating an environment that is attractive to those two demographics, then we truly are doing what we need to do. Yeah, I I would I would echo that, and my experience
0: as well. I mean, I we had a strong youth group, so I participated in that. Yeah, um, I'm glad you did, and continue that, to. And that is when I left the church was the young adult time in my life. So you know, had I find had I found a uh, a circle of mercy in my young adulthood, um, mm-hmm. I, I might have stayed in the church. So I agree; yeah. those are those are two just incredibly important demographics in our.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: in our community and I, I hope they they continue to to grow and thrive so well thank you sir for joining me I don't know how long we've been at it because I haven't been keeping track but uh, happy to thanks for listening please check out our show notes for this and other episodes at circlestories.org. while you're there you can leave a comment browse the archived episodes Recommend a conversation we need to have. Subscribe, like, and review. Break music was provided with permission by David Lamott. Find him and links to his catalog at davidlamott.com. Show music, Will the Circle be Unbroken? Music by Ada R. Habershon. Arranged by Randa Kirschbaum. And performed by Dr. Jennifer Wilson. Don't try and follow us Circle Stories on social media because, well, I just don't have time. C.S. Lewis said the next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are.